Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast. This week, your sponsor is me. If you wish to help caffeinate this podcast, then you can use the link in my bio at buymeacoffee.com to supply me with a coffee or two or three. Depends how generous you feel. Jane McCarry. Is it Jane McCarry or do they call you Jane Gibson? I don't know what one to, to no, call McCarry you. McCarry is my kind of real name. And Gibson, uh, that's what I've been when I'm in school. I'm Mrs. Gibson, so that makes me quite strict. That's what I kind of pretend. Mrs. Gibson me. and yeah, <laughs> or Doctor oh, McCarry. Jane Mc... Doctor McCarry, do you? <laughs> yeah, of course. Your your recent news. That's no, amazing. Yeah. Mark it out, yeah. We'll milk that to the day we die, and until somebody actually needs us in a plane or something, and they say, "Is it is it Doctor Cox?" <laughs> that's what we're like, No, we can't. We... We can tell you a joke, maybe, but we'll never be able to. That's really as far as we go. I'll, I'll mimic your grand, but I can't, I can't stop having a heart right. attack. I know, exactly. I really, really no use at all. Oh, Jane McCary, welcome to the Development by David podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've got I've got a Jack Russell here, my old dog here at my side. And I've had my son's puppy all day that he wrote me a contract, my boys, and said that I wouldn't even know I had a dog. They would do everything. And Matt would be mine and the puppy would be theirs. Every day, I've got the puppy. Everywhere I go, everything I do. Even doing this tonight, I had to say, can somebody make sure they're home for the puppy? So, yes. Yes, so, all good. Besides professional dog sitter, who is Jane McCarry today? in 2022 what are you known for what am i known for i don't even know i don't it's weird i don't even think like that i mean i sometimes i do get recognized in the street the boys get it much more but i, I guess i'm known round. i'm known for being the boys mommy <laughs> i'm known for the woman <laughs> always walking that jack russell um i wouldn't say i mean obviously there's the still game thing there's Probably the Me Too, which is an unfortunate title in this climate. Uh, <laughs> not the Me Too campaign, as if it was a Me Too children's show. Very, very different. Um, so I, I guess if you're if you're going to be known for something, it would it would be that. But yeah, I don't even think of it like that. It's still game. It was only a few months of the year, so it wasn't a big part of our lives. Um, so I kind of feel like. I would. It was lovely. It was a gift of a part, and it was. But for other people who watch it a lot, it's a maybe a big part of their life. It wasn't a big part of my life. It was a, a genuinely a joy and a pleasure to be part of it. But it was such a small part of your year. You were doing all those other jobs in between, but people don't realise that. You know, it. It was just. Yeah, it was never. It was never really a huge part of my life, if I'm honest. Well, let's talk about your upbringing. Where were you born, and like, what was your route to entry for performing arts? Well, I was born in south side of Glasgow, so it was kind of between Rutherglen and Kings Park. The boundary was in our street, and it used to move all the time, whether you were Glasgow or South Lanarkshire. Um, so my mum and dad. I was an only child. And probably a bit indulged, that's the truth. Like in the summer holidays, there was loads of kids in our street, girls that I'm still really close to, very friendly with. And my mum would go, we'd go, we're bored, what would we do? Mum would go, do a show. And uh, we would let the dogs get married and have weddings for the dogs and uh, we parties and would sing and dance yeah, and definitely. perform. So that's kind of how I got involved in uh, starting with it. And then when I went, to a uh, school I wasn't very good at a lot of things at school but I did love doing a show and I remember doing Pinocchio and um, I was Jiminy Cricket and it was a guy called Clark Crosby and he had a big long fake nose and by accident my finger hit his nose and it knocked it to the side and the audience there was a big laugh and I remember even I wonder if you were eight or nine and I remember feeling the power of that laugh and then keeping knocking his nose off until poor Clark Crosby ran off crying. Um, but And that was kind of my first taste of the joy of that. And then as time went on at secondary, me and my really close pal, she's still my really close pal, Karen, 
um, from P1, we sang in a band together. So there was that. And one of the girls in the band went to drama school. So again, like what you were saying, if you can see it, you can be it. So I saw her doing it and I thought, I want to do that because it seemed possible. So she went through to Queen Margaret in Edinburgh and I applied to Queen Margaret. And again, I kind of felt like the RSEMD or the Conservators is known now, it wasn't really for people like me, which is crazy now, stupid. But at the time, I felt so ordinary. And I thought, well, I'm not glamorous. I'm not like a proper actress. I just like dressing up, doing comedy, doing shows, doing making people laugh and being silly. And so I kind of felt, I felt more comfortable at Queen Margaret. And then from there, went on to get other jobs. But my mum and dad were devastated. Mum and dad thought, you'll never work, you'll never earn any money, you'll never... And I remember Mark Cox said, like, his, he gave up a joint apprenticeship in joinery to go to drama school. And his dad was beside, I won't even tell you the language that his dad used, uh, when this boy was giving up a good mm -hmm. apprenticeship to go and be an actor. So, don't get me wrong, it's been great, great, great fun. But the boy back to back for me, he gave up medicine to go and do acting. And I couldn't with... I, I, I mean, I couldn't really encourage that, <laughs> if I'm honest. Sandy was doing medicine, he gave it up. He did other things and then he got into acting, writing. And the very first show in a still game, his mum was sitting next to me and she said to him, you stupid boy you gave up your career in medicine <laughs> for this rubbish so I don't I wouldn't it's been a great life we have been lucky and we have laughed we've gone to great parties I wouldn't change it for myself but it's not always the best path for everybody because there's so many people um, every year coming into the industry there's not a lot of work there's no security you know <laughs> I'm so glad that you've had a rewarding and fulfilling career and in retrospect you wouldn't change a thing for yourself where did your initial career start off what was your first performing gig uh, well when I left drama school uh, uh, that was in the June and in August I started a tour with the Tron Theatre and it was called The Good, the Good Sisters it was a Michelle Trombley play and we went to Montreal for a month and so we got a tour of all over Scotland and so that that was a great experience. And it was some it was oh there was loads of women, it was fifteen women that was in that show. And some quite high profile people, very established actors. I felt so out of my comfort zone. I felt so intimidated by it. And at the smallest part, I was doing something called ESM, which means I was doing props and bits of stage management as well. Uh, and it's, there was some lovely, lovely women in it. But after that job I thought I don't know if this is for me because I didn't I still felt like I'm not like the others I'm kind of a bit I felt a bit weird and I felt a bit I just felt like I didn't really fit into the world and when we went to um Montreal the area that we stayed in the person who'd done a, the recce for the accommodation I went during the day but at night it was a red light district so right across I was the only person from the show on my floor because I didn't know any of the others and there was a pimp right across from my door and you could hear the gun, you could hear shockers with spikes, there was, you know, like I would go up in the lift and I would go off and I was genuinely scared and I mean I was scared to the point that actually the, the guy that I was seeing at the time who I ended up marrying, eh, he came out and stayed with me for two weeks because I didn't like it, I didn't feel safe travelling because I was always travelling on my own because I was at a different time to stage management and the actors when I had to go in um, so it probably wasn't it wasn't a great experience if I'm honest but then when I finished that job I went straight on to a panto at Cumbernauld and that was a brilliant job and then after that job I got another job with a company called Baldy Bain and we used to tour about uh, in a van going round schools and I did that off and on with that company for or oh, probably at least four years more maybe and that was some of the best laughs of my life you, you never had any money but you were always out eating drinking carrying on I'm still very very close to uh, a lot of the people that I worked with at that point and we were young and 
free and you know when you know I was just living at home <laughs> in fact some days like the, the the bus would peep the, the old van would peep outside and I'd be like I'll be out in a minute and my mum this is ridiculous I was like in my 20s would be drying my pants at the gas fire why I would only have that limited amount of pants but she'd be like that but she'll just be a minute everybody come away <laughs> so um that was that but the people, they were a wonderful company and wonderful people. And I, I mean, I absolutely loved that. And and you you treasure that as an actor. As much as I absolutely loved Still Game, I loved the boys. I loved the job. But th there was no responsibility doing Baldy Bane. Um, and that they were my happiest jobs by far. Did you ever think at that moment that you would be on TV? Um, I was always doing wee bits of telly throughout all of that. I would always do, um, when we were at left drama school, there was a woman called Lynn Baines and she said, if you're going for an audition for anything, then you you must be professional because I would dress up and things. You, should go. you mustn't do that. No costumes, no props, no nothing. You just go and you... And I thought, well, if that's the advice that everybody's, going to, everybody's getting, I'm going to do something else. <laughs> so I did dress up and I did take props. I took... Or my best pal, Alien Hardgrani, um, Hardgrani's pants. Uh, I and, and I took ridiculous amounts of things into this edition for the comedy unit. And uh, before the day was over, I got a phone call to say, would you do something called Tis the Season to be Jolly? And that was amazing. That was Ricky Fulton and Jimmy Logan, who were heroes of mine. Ricky Fulton, especially, we were brought up with, um, with all the characters he played especially New Year. Do you remember Ricky Fulton? No, I'm going to give him a Google whilst on the podcast. Google, Google Ricky Fulton. He was absolutely, and it was a reverend, I am jolly, was on at New Year. And we were brought up with, like, that was the best thing ever. So to be on at New Year with Ricky Fulton, I actually thought nothing, I couldn't think of anything better than that. A Hollywood film wouldn't have been better. Nothing would have been better than that. It was delightful. And... I didn't know they didn't really get on and it said in the script I was a dental nurse it said dental nurse holds the mask over Ricky Fulton's face the Reverend I am Jolly's face and turns on the gas so I did that but we were in a real dental surgery so actually he was getting real gas and we were filming at night and then he was violently sick and the whole thing was horrendous and I thought I remember going home and crying and saying to my mum I'll never ever work again that'll be it they'll never get me back but um and just going, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And then me and Jim Logan held him down as he was struggling. But I thought that was part of what I should have been doing. Anyway, um, so, but then not long after that, I met Ford and Greg. Um, and we were they were writing different things. We did, I think, a pilot uh, in a first series, I think it was, called a uh, Pulp Video. That was a huge learning experience. It worked with lots of great people. And then they wrote a kid show that I was in called Hubbub. Uh, and they were writing for part of that. There were loads of things, the Baldy Man, the Parahandy. It was just hundreds of wee jobs that we were all kind of doing together. And then uh, I did the radio shows for Tune the Fat, and then they went on to do Tune the Fat on the telly, and I had a baby, and I'd been, I went back to do my teaching when I was about 13, and I just, I was so upset when Tune the Fat hit the telly, and it was this huge success. And my life had kind of gone in a different direction. And I was like, just my luck, all those years. And then that happens. It goes in telly when I'm away having a baby and doing the teaching and everything. And and then Greg's wife came to visit me about two weeks after I'd had the baby. She's a good friend, dear friend, and a brilliant girl, Julie. And I was sitting with cabbage leaves on my boobs, greeting. You don't know about cabbage leaves yet and your boobs yet if you're breastfeeding, David. You never need to know about that. <laughs> And I remember just sitting and Julie said, Jane, don't worry, the boys are writing a new thing and they're writing a part for you and everything's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because I was like, I'm totally skint. But the babe, I was like, oh, Julie. She said, Jane, Jane, it's going to be, trust me. As she was carrying me down the stairs with her wee boy and my baby and getting me to the doctors, going, I don't think she's right. <laughs> But uh, and and then we did, and then that was that was all kind of great. But yeah, there was there was loads of times, so many times, 
you know, been absolutely skint and absolutely, you know, worried about what you were going to do and what job you were going to get. And when I went, when I was doing the teaching thing, I went back to get a job in a sexual health advice line. And even at that, that was, that was joyous. It was amazing money. I think it was like £10 an hour or something. Now, back then, £10 an hour to tell boys how to masturbate. And, you know, that was delightful. I couldn't think of anything better. Uh, so I and I used to love doing that. I used to be, I used to sneak in a magazine or something, and they would be talking away. And it was it was sponsored by NHS, and it was a wonderful thing actually for people who were in trouble and who did need help and advice. But a lot of it was boys masturbating, <laughs> and um, I'd be just reading a magazine, just you know. Um, then like a pal would phone, and I'd go, "What are you doing?" Go, I'm walking the dog. I'm going up a hill. I'm going all right. Okay, <laughs> I'll let you off. <laughs> but, um, so, no, the, the, in all those jobs that you do and all those experiences and all the places you go, the people you meet, my mum and dad's friends being older, that was a great, great thing because so much of the, not the material, because before Greg wrote that, but the sounds, the rhythms, the comedy, um, being around older people, loving older people, that, all that I, I used to put in the bank. I used to go places, get on buses, everything, write down things I heard. Uh, I loved watching, just sitting watching people. Um, going down to the, the the Rutherglen Arcade, the Mitchell Arcade, and I used to just love Eerie I used to always miss my stop in the bus or the train because I'd be listening in to what people were saying. And I think that's the best thing you can do if you want to be a performer in any way. You learn your craft at college, but you 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 have to learn about people, how people are, how they speak, what they say. And still, Mark Cox and I, we, we love telling stories about things that we've overheard and people we've come across. And it might not seem funny on the surface, but actually if you tune in and you listen, it's hysterical. Do you remember any specific examples where you took um, insight or motivation from someone that you've seen on the street for your part, as Isa or any other part? Just characters when I was out and about, man, I can scream, man, I can scam, man, to me, character, all those real characters that you would see, how they would walk, what they would do. A man, to me, character, she had, um, I remember she, we were at a christening and she fell when she came out of the church. And quick as a flash, she said to the minister, Oh, minister, you see before you a fallen woman, you know, just so sharp and so fast. and and she used to always would go on the bus and she would always have a packet of mint sensations or fruit sensations. She used to always have both. And she would always go up to the driver and wink and say, oh, driver, could I offer you a wee sensation? And I, I thought the episode was Robbie Coltrane when she was on the bus. I was thinking about Manti Maisie and, um, you know, she stayed in the high-rise flats at Pollock Shaw's. And she actually, I collected her one day and she'd made pickled beetroot for my mum, which she had a friend that had an allotment. But anyway, and we come down the stairs and she fell and smashed it. And she had a farm foods bag with holes and all the beetroot was dripping out the holes and she was all covered. In it. So we had to get her upstairs, change her tights, change her skirt, give her a wee rest. She was on, she had an oxygen mask and an oxygen canister we used to carry about <laughs> and her 20 Benson and Hedges in her bag. <laughs> it wasn't great with the, with the oxygen. But anyway, uh, and so when we came back down the stairs half an hour later, the police had cordoned all off. And we're taking samples because there'd been a lot of trouble in the flats. And uh, the wee, wee caretaker, everybody was there, swarming with police. And they thought there'd been another stabbing or something because it looked like a pool of blood. <laughs> and there was blood in the lift or heat route. And I went, oh, Auntie Maisie. And she just grabbed me and she went, keep walking, hen. <laughs> she wouldn't let. So I thought when that goes back to the lab for what blood <laughs> it is, it's going to be pickled beetroot <laughs> from old Frank's allotment. So it was just... Uh, it was a joy being around them. That's the truth. So I'm guessing by having all these amazing characters in your life already, leaning into that role when you got essentially called up for it was quite easy because you had been around people just like Isa for so many years. It was actually, and all of us in Still Game, all of us had been around older people that we really loved and were really close to. So, I mean, so much of Naveed Sanjay's dad as well, 
Um, you know, everybody, everybody, it was a real, Mark's mum and dad were a bit older as well. He was the youngest. Um, you know, all of us had really strong relationships. Uh, and so, although obviously still game is heightened, the comedy is heightened, it always comes from a place of truth. All good com comedy comes from a place of truth. So the writing in that show, you know, a lot of the stories are real and, it, you know, the boys have written it from the heart, from, you know, older people that they knew. Did you know it was going to be the runaway success that it was? Did you expect that at all? Never, not at all. When we did Pulp Video, Ford said to me, he went, oh, Janie, he says, this is going to be amazing, this is going to change your lives, and then nothing happened. <laughs> As a million jobs, and I, and so when we did Still Game, and my feet were completely on the ground, and still are, and all of us, and I honestly mean that, if anybody knows any of us in Still Game, not every one of those boys couldn't be more down to earth, have no ego at all. Like when we were doing the hydro, there was no drugs and rock and roll. It was sausage rolls and, you know, tea and pecora and, um, you know, there was no... There was no nonsense. There was nobody getting above themselves. You know, none of none of the rest of us would allow one of us to behave like that. But you would, you wouldn't, you wouldn't let yourself down or embarrass yourself being like that. Why would you? That'd be horrific. Uh, so no, they're they're all down to earth and they're all lovely. What are what are Ford, Kieran, and Griff Hemphill like off stage? Are they just as funny as they are on screen? All the boys are really funny. Every one of those boys in that show are very funny off stage. Every single one of them. All of them. Do you have any examples of any sort of like backstage antics between you all? Well, it was it was non-stop. I mean, there was so many stories uh, that you know you've probably heard before because we've told them on different kind of platforms and different forums. But Mark had a sports car and um, he just got it because he's split up with this girl and he was showing off and he was like taking like makeup girls for a spin and costume and you know and so me and Paul like that that's a pure ready. So when he was on set, we went went to a garage and we got them to make up a Reggie plate and put it on the back of his. It wasn't a new car, but new to him. And uh, he was driving about, thinking he was a bee's knees. And after two days, a guy said to him, I set a traffic lights. He went, light your Reggie, mate. And he would blow a bag <laughs> on his, the back of his car, driving about. And I remember the, the guy Colin King, who was a lovely man who did, if I want to be good, that he's sitting and he had all the trucks for costume makeup, all these huge trucks. And it was blue with King written on the side for Colin King. And Ford and Greg got F-U-C <laughs> in exactly the same letters, same size, same everything, font, everything, and got so poor poor Collins drive about till he got it removed with fucking <laughs> on the side of every truck that he had. So they were always mixing with the makeup people, they were always playing tricks, maybe somebody new would come in, this this guy came in to play a part. And it was like a kind of dead street, really serious part. And they got this huge ginger comedy, big handlebar moustache. And they made makeup tell them that that's what he had to wear. And you could actually see the sweat running down the poor young guy's face because he was thinking, oh, no, I didn't see the character like this. And he was going, are you sure? And the makeup girl was going, yeah, I'm really sorry, but that's what they want you to wear. And I mean, that's a rotten thing to do. Um, they would... We would phone up people doing fakey phone calls. We would, Mark and I would go into different shops at the beginning and pretend to be <laughs> old people and like try and buy condoms and everything. And he would tell people that I'd been round the block and he wanted to make sure that he never caught anything. And there was like so many different things. Um, and, it, and it used to have a quiz at lunchtime every day um, in the Winnie Bagel called the Quiz of Bagel. And anybody who wanted to join in, so it was very welcoming to people they were doing once. It's very, it's quite intimidating to do a day on a show that people have watched, especially if you've got one or two lines. Because if you've got like your one line is, um, can I have a loaf navid? You're going to go, can I have, can I have a, can I have a loaf navid? No, you go, oh, can I have a loaf navid? No, I'll, I'll say, um, can can I have a loaf navid? No, I'll not get us to. Uh, can I have? A, I'll just throw it away. Can I have a loaf navid? Can I have a loaf navid? You know, so you, it becomes a big thing. 
know, if you've got one line as opposed to getting what character will I do for, rather than just, you know, you just go, it, it, it just got going to get a loaf maybe. It, it, it can just, just make it make it nothing. But when you've got that one line and you're nervous, it's horrible. So when everybody was kind of welcomed in to come into the Winnebago to do the quiz, to chat, to, um, there wasn't really a status. It made everybody relaxed. There was a lot of laughter. I think Michael Hines, the director, was demented with us at times. And in some jobs, it's too fast. If you do something like River City, you do not have time to have any carry on. But we did have the luxury of that. And actually, it's dead important because it wasn't about the carry on. It was about sparking ideas. You'd be relaxed. You, you, your performance would be better. Michael was great. If you said, you couldn't do it often, but if I said, Michael, I was shite. Please, can I do that again? And he would go, trust me, if you were shite, I'll tell you you're shite. <laughs> But that was fine. But if you want to do it again, you can do it again. And to have the confidence to be able to say that to a director is, is a big thing because time is tight. I think the viewer probably has a sense of that, that you all had some banter off stage and you got on so well because how well you guys gelled on screen. You touched on the condom story with Mark. I think I've seen an interview about uh, was it like a flavoured condom story. Can you tell that one? I think it's hilarious. Well, it was just that we'd gone into Boots and the show hadn't been aired. So um, he went up to the girl behind, she was really young as well, it's a shame, the girl behind the counter. And, uh, and so that's what he'd said. He said, he asked us, have you any French letters? She looked like that. Do you know what a French letter is? No. Have you heard of a French letter, David? Right. So that's like an old school name for a god. And then he said that a rubber Johnny. Do you know what a rubber Johnny was? Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of that? Because it's like the language is so different now. So uh, and she she went, do you mean a condom? And he, he went, aye. He says, and here's been round the block a few times. You know, I don't want to be catching anything. She's my new girlfriend. And she went like that, oh, hiya. And I went, oh, see you. And he says, um, where would they be, darling? She went, oh, they're all on that wall over there. So he says, oh, my, that's some selection, that, darling. He says, have you got colours? He says, and flavours? I says, what would you want with a flavoured condom, darling? And she went, eh, oh, I, I don't really know. And I said, what flavours have you got? So she went, eh, I think eh, she, there's banana, there's a eh, toffee and chocolate. And I says, oh, no, darling. I says, I have the diabetes. I says, if you're nothing <laughs> for a mere mature palate. And then he says, pea and ham, darling, or a, or a liver and onion. <laughs> But what was amazing, we used to go and ask for, we used to ask it, I would up to the couch and we'll ask for pile cream for him. And he's like, I don't want, I says, it's, it's terrible piles, I says, so we used to, it was just kind of non-stop. Was there a specific moment where you realised that Still Game had become like hallmarked into culture and society? Because I think every single one of my mates and everyone that I know could rhyme it off the back of their uh, tongue, like, everyone knows still game quote for quote almost was there a moment where you realised it was totally hallmarked into culture I had that kind of break and we're going to do live shows and, 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 and it's lovely but again I'm not really recognised that much a wee bit more now but you know you're kind of cutting about I've got the kids I'm doing my thing it wasn't really in my in my consciousness at all and then when we came to the live shows uh, you know we were all going oh my god do you think we'll sell three shows because it was 11,000 per night and we're like, I don't know, and oh God, what if it's a disaster? What if it doesn't work? And it was huge, really brave of the boys to do it and really bold. And I remember my agent at the time saying, you know, you snap at it, I don't think it will sell. I mean, who who would, she, she kind of went, well, who would come to that? And I thought, God, who would come to that? And then within an hour, it had broken every record, broken the, broken the internet, and within days, it was like all over every radio station, every, it was absolutely mental. It was like 21 shows were sold out in no time at all. And we were going, oh my God, how can this be? So I, th I think that was a wake up call for me to go, oh my God, this is oh. mental. And then when we, I mean, the hydro shows were, I must, I must, I must say the best, I did love doing my Baldy Beaches, I did, but the hydro shows without doubt probably were the most, just exhilarating and exciting and fabulous things I've ever done. I mean, 
I was just, it was absolutely, it was bliss. It was electric. It was, it was like, I've never felt a feeling like it. And when you went on stage, like 11,000 people going mental and then mental every time you spoke, mental at the end, shouting things out. Um, the, the middle show for me, particularly the one on the ship, I thought that was so well written and I thought the set was incredible and I thought I loved the dancers and I kind of loved the, the, the idea of it. And I just, I felt so comfortable because we knew that it would work. Whereas the first time round, we're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Um, and at the end, me and Sanj were in the poop deck right at the top of the ship, like after as if the credits had gone up and it was just a wee bit at the end. And we used to just hold each other. He would, I was standing in front of him like we were on Titanic and he, he was behind me and he would squeeze my shoulders and we would just go, let's never forget this moment. And I remember um, Paul said to me, put your thumb and your middle finger together and close your eyes, take a picture. And I did, and it's weird. And I can still be on that poop deck with sand squeeze my shoulders, looking out onto all those people screaming. And to the day I die, that will be one of the most magical moments of my life. Jane, that sounds so magical. Not like such a percentage of the population will ever experience something like that. Like most rock stars and pop stars don't even sell out 21 nights at a place like the Hydro and given the journey that you've been on reflecting on the fact that at one point you didn't feel like you fit in you fitted into the performance art industry like that must have been a such a full circle moment for you and no wonder you had to have that almost pinch me moment that's so amazing to hear oh no it was and we're always so thankful to the people the fans nobody says like see if you played for rangers or celtic or something in scotland ha ha half of the half of Glasgow will probably hate you right half will love you half will hate you but, but if you go on the pitch and you're rotten that Saturday even the ones that love you are going to go you're an arsehole or you know so you're going to get you're going to get it tight but in certain jobs certain things you know but we still game if people don't watch it or they don't like it nobody's going to shout you're an arsehole in the street or you're rotten or <laughs> they'll just ignore you you know it's fine so you can go about your business but for the people that do like it it's lovely people because nobody's ever mean or a pain people come go oh do you know who they call me they call me eyes or people always say to me i look taller they're never said younger they always say taller but um you know so people are always so warm and so kind and do you remember people that have said that they've learned english coming to, to live in scotland through watching still game to get the rhythm and the comedy and you know uh, that then, and I think that's lovely if somebody maybe from Poland or whatever or Romania they come up and they go thank you I, I, I get it I get living here I get it because of what's still game or like somebody will say they've had a bad bit of depression or a, a, an illness or something in their lives or a breakup and it's they've been really low and and I'm not I'm, I'm not being flippant with this because I don't take credit for it it's writing of it and and the whole kind of production of every single person that worked on that show. But you know, people will say, that saved me. That got me a, a really bad place. And that is that is amazing. That is magical that a show can do that. So I think of it as a product. I think of it as not one person or not one talent or not. It's like everybody came together with really good energy, with love for the characters that were portraying, love for each other great respect for the audience and, and and you know I don't I don't place it as a, but for me like for Ricky Fulton and all of that that was so special and I feel as if I'm kind of part of something that's special to people for this generation and nothing could be better than that like literally nothing could be better 100%. One of the things that I'm reflecting on is at the beginning of the conversation, we kind of laughed and joked about encouraging our kids to become doctors. Uh, doctors save lives, of course, but perhaps you did. Perhaps, oh, perhaps still game did. Like, reflecting on that sentiment, perhaps in, in, in a yeah. very different way, a doctor would save lives. Perhaps still game has. It, it seems really like a, like, it seems like you're rich. Like, like still game has made you rich in one way rich, rich, rich in emotion rich in fulfillment rich in giving back that's just amazing to hear no it definitely has it has done and 
Like Mark Cox and I say to each other, and I genuinely mean this, we say to each other probably at least once a week, we are so lucky. So, so, so lucky. Not lucky that it was never great money to still give me the telly. I'm not, it really wasn't. It was rotten. I was be always better off teaching than I was doing still giving telly. But, um, but it's, it's, it's never about that. You do not go into it. If I'd only ever done Baldy Bean and just managed to pay my bills and just go over the line, but laughed and I was with people that, that I liked and I was doing a job I liked, that would have been enough for me. That would have been enough. It was never fame. I've never been fame hungry. Never, never, never. I've never wanted to be known as me. I've always just wanted to love playing different parts and hiding under sort of disguise of a character. But honestly, we do. We say to each other, we're so lucky because we've done so many jobs where we've met the best people, the warmest, funniest, kindest people, quirkiest people, queer hawks for us. And, you know, so colourful. And we've had so much goodwill. We've got to, Still Game has allowed us to go places. Like we went to Abu Dhabi to do a burn supper. We've been all over Scotland. We've been down south doing things that we would never have got to do without Still Game. And, you know, the bond that we've got with, with, with you know, friendships, it's really a, a deep bond and a, and a trust that we look after each other and, and each other. And, you know, like even with, with, with things like money, the you know, when you're negotiating wages, the boys will go to me, this is what I'm getting. Will you make sure you've got the same? There isn't many jobs where people would do that to you know, let's all have the same, let's share it and tell each other what it is and, you know, um, I could phone any one of them. I mean, Ford and Greg, it's slightly different because they were like your boss, so although I love them to bits and, you know, they're my friends and, like, I'm dead close to Greg's wife and stuff and I, and I, and I totally love them, but, like, with Gav, Ange, Mark and Paul, I could, I could phone them tomorrow and they, they, would, they would do anything, they would do anything anything. Mark's taking the puppy for the weekend. Um, you know, there was a time that I didn't, you know, the car and stuff and Paul's like that. Have my car, come and have this, have that, take that, just have it, have it. Um, it, it. Like literally, I could ask them anything and they would say, when do you need it? When do you want it? I'm here. Mm. So I don't think I've ever, I genuinely do think all we've done is dress up and been given a good writing. Do you know what I mean? Let's not it would be ridiculous if I was big-headed, you know, re realistically, if you think what I've actually done, it would be ridiculous. Playing it short. I think you're underplaying it hugely. No, I think you're un underplaying it hugely, Jane, honestly. Like, the amount of laughters and nightedness that we've had in my own house at your character and the way you bring that to life, like, oh, you're underselling it so much. Like, oh, so many households have been touched by... Yeah. I think like like Sandra always says that it's like being in a rock band. You know, it's weird because you only know how it feels when you're in it. And you know, for us, it's weird for people on the outside. Do you know what I mean? Like people coming ask for a, a selfie and they're shaking. <laughs> oh my god, that's so weird. How you know, but but you I would feel the same way if it was Ronnie Corbett or somebody or Billy Connolly or some you know, it's just when you're in it, it's different. I think as well, if you're from the from the west of Scotland, oh, sorry, sorry, I think if you're from the west of Scotland particularly, but it's Scottish generally, you, you would never be allowed to get above your station. You know, you just wouldn't. And I think when my mum and dad came to see, still came, they only came to the first one, but then my dad died. And then they were both in wheelchairs at that point because mum had just had a hip operation. And uh, so the two of them came in, they were treated, I'm not joking, David, like royalty. They were brought in the stage door. The whole cast came down. Hello, Miss Miss McCarry, how are you? How are you? They were so, so, so lovely. They were given everything. They were given the best seats in the house. They were treated so well. And don't get me wrong, they did appreciate that. Um, and then when they were getting brought out and I went I went down to theirs after the show and I said, Mum, did you enjoy it? And they went, my dad went, that was a lot of rubbish. <laughs> you know, like nobody went, they didn't go, oh my God, it was all those people and, and you're on that stage and it was, everybody was screaming and it was like, that was what I was like, you want a cup of tea, hen? And it was just like never mentioned. 
And then the second title, I said, Mum, do you want to come? No, no bother. Margaret Robertson, <laughs> she'll maybe go, but no, just give my ticket away. I was like, Mum, whatever. But I knew that they were dead proud. I knew that they were proud and I knew that they, but there was certainly, um, you know, you didn't get above your station. Jane, every single night my dad watches Still Game, every single night without fail. You at least watch one episode, right? And he's also got a bit of a dodgy hip, a dodgy knee. And when I told him I had you coming on, he said, oh, why did you, why, like, straight faced, why, why did you ask Isa to come on when you could have had Winston and then he limped in the living room? And that was his only validation of oh, me having you on. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. You should have had him sitting beside you. <laughs> yeah you see that's the thing isn't it you wouldn't um i don't know it's just it's just a weird thing but it's a nice thing and it's just what we're used to i remember the, the guy that played harry he told a story that he'd been over uh, was it val kilmer or something i don't want to i don't want to diss val kilmer if it wasn't him but it was some some star now again it wouldn't probably have been the star himself the star probably didn't give a hoot it was the management of that star said that he wasn't allowed to have eye contact with him. And that was in the rule. That was in his contract. Even playing a scene with him, there would be a stand-in when the camera was on him. And uh, so, like, we could have eye contact when the camera was on, I think, um, who was it? Or whoever it was, the camera, he could have eye contact for his scenes. But as soon as the camera was on him, he went off to his dressing room some guy would just read in the lines and he would have no contact and have nothing. And he said, he was a funny wee man, and he went, well, I stared them out. He went, what's he going to do with it? I was like, yes, good for you, Ronnie. <laughs> um, Unlike you, I think Isa likes to be the centre of attention, though. I think she likes to be the big name on campus. That being said, if she had a Tinder profile, how do you think it would look? Oh, well, Isa likes her whole, David. I mean, there's no two ways about <laughs> it. You know, you can't, if you think about Isa, so she's right from the start of the series, it's established she is an older woman who still uses a vibrator. So that's point one, which was very <laughs> embarrassing for my children at school. Um, She had had her husband. She pretended to have a fling with Paul which when we were filming that scene, it was a tiny set and the, the bed was actually screwed into the floor because it wasn't a real bed. So there was a tiny space down the side of the bed and me and Paul laughed so much that he rolled off the bed and then he got completely jammed down the side of the bed. And you know when you go like to putty, you, you can't, you've got no strength when you can't stop laughing and we couldn't get him out because he was so jammed and we couldn't stop laughing. We were crying and crying and crying. And the makeup team were going off their nut because it, the latex would go white. And once it goes white, there's no way of covering it up. <laughs> You'd start again for an hour and a half in makeup. And we'd have to have an hour of getting it off and starting again. Because we couldn't stop crying, the tears were turning the latex white. So they were going mad. But um, so she had Harry, Naveed, Craig Ferguson, our wee Duda. She had uh, Edith on the stage show. Her and Edith woke up in bed in the morning. So... Um, <laughs> Who else did she have? So that's at least six kind of sexual, whereas the, the boys didn't really have that. So Isa was, she's a real yeah. goer. What, what do you think her Tinder profile would be then, David? I don't go to the bingo, but I usually have a full house, I think would be her bio. Ah. She does have a full house, very clever. She does have a full house, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nah. I definitely uh, um she's uh I she was she was a she was a great character to play. I always wanted to meet her son. Ford said to me with it last series said anything you want and they did write a bit about Colin, but I never got to meet him. Oh. I remember in the first episode back uh in the new series, um Isa had a Bluetooth mop and it was the gadgets yeah. episode. And it had yeah, these I love kind of that wire... with the wee dog. Oh, it, was... it was brilliant. But Isa had these wireless headphones. Do you think she would listen to podcasts? 
Absolutely, because it was the other episode where she was on the internet and they would come to her and she would do things online. So um, she was really, she was quite good technically and she was a good wee typist. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, because there was that episode where she was she would order stuff online and, and uh, stuff with Peggy and all that. She was messaging back and forward to Peggy. <laughs> so uh, she absolutely would. She absolutely would. Um, again, it's just, I love like, my, my friend's mum said to me the other day, Mr. Robertson, and I adore Mr. Robertson, and both her and actually many older people that I know, Mrs. R's 92, call it Covis. You never call it COVID. It's always Covis. And she says, she she goes to clubs around the uh, church around the corner. She goes to the Women's Guild and everything. And she says, Curse, she says, this COVID started through knitting. <laughs> I was like, the COVID started through knitting, Mrs. R. She went, ah, it started through the knitting, you see. See, that was a club. And then Margaret <laughs> got it. And then Jean got it. And then Ina got it. And Meg got it. And then, so it was started. So I was like, ah, right. So it spread through everybody, through the knitting club. Ah, you see, Helen <laughs> would wind the wool and pass the wool to, you know. So it was like, so it actually made logical sense that the COVID was spread through the knitting. But, um... <laughs> But it's like that kind of way of, she said to me as well that the doctor had gave her pills for the weather. And I was like, he gave you a pill for the weather? Aye. And she's very sharp. She's, do you know, she's very, very sharp. I said, what did he give you for the weather? Well, he said it would make it sunny. I went, the doctor gave you a pill to make it sunny? And she went, aye. And I said, show me the pills. And it was vitamin D. So, <laughs> it, 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 it there is great logic. He gave her tablets that would give her what the sun would give her. But it's just that oh. kind of way of thinking, and I love that. Final episode of Still Game, when you received news that it was coming to an end, and it was the last season you were going to do, um, what did you make of the ending of it? Was Were you happy with how it ended? Do you think it was a kind of appropriate ending to the, the entire yeah, show? Yeah, I think, it, I think it, like, you know, my mum and dad were in their 90s, and I, I think what happens is people fade away. I think there's no great drama. I think generally, like people see in the street, oh, do you remember Mrs. McDermott used to live there? And she had that dog, Rufus, or that, you know, you just kind of, like all the people in my mum and dad's street that died, I, I, I don't know what they died of. Some went into a home, some didn't, some, I don't really know what happened. But kind of laterally, you didn't see them very much. They didn't, you maybe saw carers going in and out, you know. They quietly, gently faded away. And I think that is just what happens. Slowly, 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 your body starts to slow down, shut that, you know, and and then like Agnes is dead who worked in that shop around the corner. Um some you know, the shop got taken over and everything changes. And you can remember Agnes that worked in the shop, what happened to her? Don't know. But you still talk about her being a character. The same as Isa, somebody will go, find that nosy old woman, Isa, and, and Navid. Remember when Navid used to come in and he would say this and he would slag you off or he would be dead cheeky or he would... And folk would go, oh, God, that's right. And that shop, somebody else's shop now. And that's just kind of what happens. You look back and they, they fade in your memory. If... I think that's beautiful. I think that's the best way it could have ended as well. But I think... We all have experienced someone pass away like that in our own lives. If Ford and um, Greg chapped on your door today and asked you to bring back the show and the gang was getting back together, would you say yes? I I can't really see that ever happening and I don't know whether that would be a good idea because I like the fact that it's complete and everything has to come to an end and you don't want to keep it going beyond where it, it was still and I think a lot of people have a lot of the writing of the first six series is fantastic. Uh, I, I, no question about that. And a lot of people, they adore some of the older ones. I think some of the writing in the new ones is absolutely brilliant. It's, you can see that they're old. You can feel that they're older. You can feel that it's, they've grown. And, and some of the writing, some people have said to me, did Ford's character, um, Jack, start to get a bit of dementia? You know, there's different, all oh, different levels in it. And it's, it's, it, you know, I'm proud of it, and I'm, and I'm, and it ended when it should have ended. If they said, 
would we do one more hydro? I would be like that. Yes, long <laughs> because I think you could get away with more. Although we were all dead in the hydro, you could get away with more. And I think I don't. I really don't think they ever would. But if they said maybe in five years or take you know a long time from now, let's come back and do a big. Even if it was just like let's do three shows of a, um, it was such a wonderful experience there. And I feel dead at home. I have the hydro. It's weird. I mean, I think we did fifty. I can't remember fifty odd shows in total, but it, it, I feel awful comfortable at the hydro, uh, it, and it really was quite joyous. So I would do that, and again in a heartbeat, I would. But I genuinely don't think that would ever happen. I don't think many people could say that they're at home at a 10,000, 11,000 seater arena. That's amazing. That was such a amazing message to finish up on. I've still only got an hour of your time and it's been one of the f- most sentimental episodes that I've ever done. If, if you were to personify Isa and give one message to the listeners from an Isa's point of view, specifically for young people, what do you think she would say? She'd probably say, people have to know. <laughs> you always, always find out as much as you can. Never stand at a bus stop and look at your phone or be on the bus and look at your phone. Put your phone in your bag and say to the woman next to you, how are you? <laughs> What's that in your wee bag? What's that in your shopping bag? Where are you going? What are you doing? Why are you going there? Who are you meeting? Find out as much as you can because you know what? You'll get a brilliant story. You'll laugh. You'll you'll make somebody else's day because, like, especially with a lot of older people, maybe think that you're the only person that spoke to them today. So that would be advice. Do an ISA. Put your phone away and speak to the person next to you in the queue. Like, you're six characters away from the Queen or from Barack Obama or from George Clooney. I've been lucky enough to be introduced to you. People can have the same interactions if they are bold enough and brave enough to put down the phone and uh, yeah, mingle with people in public. This has been a delight, Jane. Um, Really, really, really appreciate your time.